In a time when it seems our politics are poison, how can Christians engage politically in the world in a way that is helpful? We'll be talking with Jonathan Merritt about that on Good God. Stay tuned. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm George Mason, and I'm pleased to welcome back Jonathan Merritt, who was a guest uh, on the previous episode, and we're going to continue our conversation today. Jonathan, good to have you. My pleasure. Great. In the first episode, we were talking about your new book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, and also your podcast with Kirsten Powers called The Faith Angle. And so we, we talked a little bit about your uh, your life in terms of communicating about religious things and all of that, but but I think it would be helpful if we, we began by talking about how your religious life began and has been evolving and developing too. Uh, I know that you are the son of a Southern Baptist pastor who, if I remember correctly, was actually president of the Southern Baptist Convention at he one was, point too, was, yep. and he continues to be a pastor in the Atlanta area, uh, and you have uh, You've gone off to seminary in conservative Baptist uh, settings, and uh, you could talk more about that, but what is it about your growing up in the church as a pastor's son uh, and in this Southern evangelicalism, you might say, that, uh, that shaped you in a positive way? Let's start there. Well, a lot of it. So yeah. a, lot of, a lot of people, you know, they, they think uh, that, well, you, are, you grew up in this, in this setting and you've, you've changed in so many ways. Are you angry? Are you bitter? And, and I'm not, actually. Right. I'm not at all. I'm critical yeah. um, in, I think, a constructive way because I love the tradition in which I was raised so much. But I think the best thing that uh, it did for me growing up in sort of a Southern Baptist or evangelical culture is just to really give me a love for the scriptures mm -hmm. and and to be rooted in in these sacred texts of course i i read them differently mm -hmm. uh, than i used to but but to to have a real love for those has been incredible and it's incredible also because when i get to converse with people who are still in that tradition we're able to play by the same rules a little bit you know sometimes you end up talking past someone else uh when you're you for example you get an evangelical on a uh, a mainliner in a room, and sometimes you have these the, a mainliner who's using different constructs yes. to try to convince the evangelical of their point of view, and the evangelical doesn't even value those constructs. Right. But I'm able to get to a different endpoint right. using many of the same tools, right. and that to me has been an incredible gift because because uh, oftentimes I find myself, and I find this is true even in learning to speak God from scratch, I find myself asking very evangelical questions mm -hmm. and coming away with answers that aren't evangelical at all. Right, right, yeah. To me, I think one of the things when I think back upon my upbringing in, in, a, in a real evangelical setting is that it created for me uh, what the sociologist of religion, Peter Berger, called a canopy, uh, a, a sacred canopy. That is to say, I always thought I was living under the watchful eye of God and the heavens, you know, mm -hmm. that somehow uh, th this was, in, in a post-enlightenment world, I still felt there was an enchantment to it, mm -hmm. uh, which was, is extraordinary, really, uh, to be able to preserve that and to, to give that as a gift. And, and, and so, for me, that was, uh, that was a, a formative way of being able to know that I mattered, uh, that there were people who cared about me, that, that what I did wasn't just about me, but it mattered 
for God and the world, and I was part of some big story. And, and, and that's a great gift that, uh, that, that I think our tradition gave us. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, for, you know, and for me, in some ways, there was a, a reverse, maybe even, um, in terms of my experience, where I kind of came the, to the direction where you, in some ways, started out, where the kind of the mysticism and the wonder and the awe. For me, growing up, it was like, you know, if you asked me what I believed about anything. I wouldn't point to the heavens or right. or <laughs> to nature or right. to an experience. I could write it out on an index card. Right. So it was very um, cognitive and uh -huh. it was a lot of intellectualism. It was like I, I had memorized the, the FAQs of Christianity. Right. It wasn't until later when my faith began to evolve that right. I that it started to become more of a bodily sensory experience and it wasn't merely just a cognitive experience right so you were you were probably a step ahead of me from the starting line well I'm not sure exactly um, whether it's that different but I, I do think that it uh, it created what um, I think Paul Ricoeur talked about uh, the first naivety and the second naivety, you know, and, and, and the idea is in that, in that way of forming a, a kind of magical world that our church and faith created, uh, that, that was a good gift to a child, but it's not a good gift to sustain you into adulthood. So there came then those moments when you had to go through a critical phase of saying, wait a minute now, we, we need to take a harder look at this and, 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 and begin to examine the nature of the text and the nature of our faith and realize that our neighbors dif disagreed with us about certain things and how do we account for them. And, uh, and then I think Bart talked about the, you know, reading with new eyes and, and the second naivety that happens when you can again uh, read the Bible afresh and affirm its authority, but it's not the same as it was when you were a child. Mm -hmm. I know that's been that's been of course you say first and second I'm probably on my like 12th <laughs> uh, at this point I feel like yeah. there's been an ongoing yeah. change and that to me I actually is what I think is the oftentimes at least in my experience is the engine that keeps me attached to faith Good. is that I'm constantly rediscovering it right. I, I, I I'm sometimes um, surprised I think yeah. uh, when I look at uh, some of my evangelical sisters and brothers, you go, man, you figured everything out 30 years ago. Right. And you've never had to ask hard questions, to, right. to go through the, 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 the grieving process of, of uh, letting a belief that you once uh, held to die. Right. And that has to be, I mean, how do you even stay engaged with faith mm -hmm. that, the, that the, the experience of discovery mm -hmm. was something that happened and mm -hmm. doesn't happen? Right. I, right. I, think I, I think if that were me, I would just say, you know, there, 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 there are more interesting things going on in the world than, than faith, but, but that engine of discovery, of inquiry, of curiosity, of imagination is important. So was there a particular moment was there I mean you went to Liberty University right and uh, and then did you stay there for seminary as well and did no nope. I, I, I was at I graduated from Liberty University so that's interesting yes uh, I was a uh, I was a science major so at the time I could tell you what happened on all seven literal days of creation <laughs> um, I went to seminary at Southeastern Baptist okay, Theological sure. Seminary right. Southern Baptist Southern Seminary Baptist. and then went on to do graduate work at Emory University which is right. um, 
United Methodist. So right. you can almost see from kind of a fundamentalist Baptist to a Southern Baptist that was less fundamentalist, but still very confessional or right. I, I would yeah. call it creedal. Yeah, well. But, um, uh, and then to a more contextual environment. Right. There was even in my education almost um, uh, a shift. And what I've told people, because people go, they, they'll they'll say, well, when did you be? When did you start liberalizing? And I I sort of scratch my head at that, and I say, I my faith has not traveled along a continuum of conservative to liberal, but it has traveled along a continuum of closed to open. Ah. I find that there's a wider embrace mm -hmm. in my faith. There's more room for for imagination yes. and mysticism in right. my faith and. I don't know that that's liberal at all. I don't know how that right. fits into those kinds of um, binary constructions, but right. I do think that there's been an opening yes. uh, of my faith over the years. I mean, I don't know how you would describe your own journey and what that continuum looks like. Well, I think the thing that, one of the gifts that we have as um, growing up in a more conservative Christian tradition is that they do actually teach you to read the Bible. Now, they, they don't really teach you to read the Bible, they tell you to read the Bible. And it's a, <laughs> right, so right. you read the Bible, and, 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 and the great thing about that is it's, God is actually quite subversive, I think, uh, about that practice, because as you do, uh, there is this um, encounter that you keep having with the text, which in my mind is a conversation with people of faith throughout the ages, and so they keep speaking. I mean, the dead keep speaking to us, and they keep uh, they they keep having a way of getting into us and saying, "You you think this, but actually uh, rethink that because mm -hmm. here's what we think." And uh, and and so I think that engagement with the text keeps the more you read the Bible, the less sure you get of it. I think, and the more. Uh, excited you get about being able to go back to it and find something new and understand it differently. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so, I, I love that. And I, I find it so interesting because I have people say, well, do you still believe the Word of God? And I think, you know, when I encounter that phrase, Word of God in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's the living Word of God. Right, right. And most, not most, I, 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 I can't break down the demographics, but I'll say there are many people in quote, Bible-believing traditions who they do engage with what they believe is the Word of God, but they don't engage with it as if it were a living, breathing organism. It, they engage with it kind of like a coroner standing right. over a corpse, right. dissecting it. Right. And uh, that to me, I think, is not at all uh, what it means to, to engage with the living Word of God. And what I found was when I when I shifted and I and I and I switched from being the coroner to the conversationalist, yeah, yeah. this this sacred book just came alive. It sort right. of sprang to life, right. and that to me was people say like, uh, you know, I think they expect that like, you know, I'm only a, a Christian professionally, but I think I'm more in love with this faith than I've ever been right. in my life. Right. And it's living and it's unpredictable. Exactly. And it shows up in places I didn't expect it. And that's that's something that's it is it is, to borrow a phrase from the other side, it's an apologetic for yeah. a different way of being Christian. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, there's a there's a phrase in uh, among uh, Jews where you, you you hear something that sounds true and they'll say, uh, this is Torah too. You know, uh, it, it may not be written in the book, but it's 
it's a living word, right? Mm -hmm. I, I remember sitting in uh, Rabbi David Stern's office one day, and we were actually talking about the Bible, and he says, now which one are we talking about? Or do you mean this one that you have this little one here? Or, and he pointed over his bookshelf, and he, you know, he has these massive volumes, and it's the Talmud, you know, and, and when you open it up on each page, it has not only the text itself, but all around it what the rabbis said, you know, ab about the text. And they have this living conversation that is ongoing. It's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's across time and it's continuing now. And I think even uh, you and I learned that the Bible is uh, living and active, mm -hmm. right? Uh, like a two-edged sword. Mm -hmm. but, but I don't think that's the way most of us grew up in conservative Christianity. And if it's a two-edged sword, it's mostly to be used against somebody else, not oh, to right. sort of cut to uh, our own uh, understanding of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, you're, you're touching on something that I think is, is one of the things that drives many people like you and me, people who value some of the things that we value, away from these more rigid expressions of Christianity which is is weaponizing the sacred text mm, yeah, yeah and um it that's not a modern thing it's right. not a it's not a sure. 21st century thing it's kind of the one of those ongoing problems that we continue to repeat mm -hmm. in in mm -hmm. as christians but i think when you weaponize the bible people go yeah that's not something right. when you weaponize the faith we're finding it now it's it's becoming politicized it's becoming weaponized that the bible is oftentimes in some some of the communities, maybe in many of the communities that we've come from, it's it's it is a means to an end and not an end in itself. Yes. And I think that when it becomes a means to some other end, whether that end is political or sociological or right. theological, right. then it becomes something that's not all that interesting. It's certainly not alive, but it's also not really that interesting. Right. I don't know. I don't know if you feel that way, but I do. Well, I mean, how many times did in, in your growing up years did you? encounter a Bible study where basically you were taught certain principles that you simply had to, uh, that, that were supposedly extracted from the text right. and they, uh, they were, you know, not to be questioned. They, were, they, they had a scripture verse at the end, a, a reference, uh, but these were principles that were inviolable from God's word mm -hmm. and, and there was no conversation right. about it. Uh, and I think one of the most beautiful things that's happened over time is the, the recovery of the narrative structure of the text, uh, the story form, mm -hmm. the invitation for you to be part of this story and to ask what are these characters doing and how are they wrestling with God and how did they make these decisions? Mm -hmm. uh, and then we're invited into that too. Uh, we get to do that as well. And so to me, it's not about um, mastering the good book, so to speak, where you, you know it uh, in terms of knowledge, but you, you actually learn how they thought, how they prayed, how they, they made decisions, so that you might not make the same ones, but you're going to do it knowing uh, the, the mode of spiritual discernment that mm -hmm. they, they had. And so let's pick that up again at, after the break because I think it applies to so many other things going on in American religion. Compassionate DFW is striving to make Dallas-Fort Worth more intentionally compassionate, where everyone is committed to live by the principles of compassion and the golden rule. It works through diverse initiatives, arts, business, education, environmental, healthcare, religious, spiritual, interfaith, and more. Visit CompassionateDFW.org to get involved. 
We're back with Jonathan Merritt, good God. Thank you for being with us. And we've been talking about uh, ways in which we've each of us been kind of growing in uh, new understandings of how to think about the faith and talk God and, and, and to see the Bible as an ally in this process, not something that we simply use to weaponize against our enemies, uh, but to engage as a model for us. Uh, that's really important in this time when we find ourselves uh, in challenging political times when again religion and politics is uh, there is a temptation to wed them again uh, our current administration we just had uh, vice president pence was here uh, and spoke to the southern baptist convention and uh, while that's not unprecedented for something like that to happen uh, reports are that it was it sounded more like a campaign speech than it did uh, an engagement with a religious community uh, so where do you think the challenges are right now for religion and politics in in their always uneasy relationship mm -hmm. with one another you know uh, the this is not a, le a left-right issue. Yeah. Uh, so there, there are uh, various religious groups on both sides of the aisles that mm -hmm. if you look at the history of it, I mean, I think about um, uh, Bill Clinton being prayed for by liberal ministers in the Oval Office for his uh, budget fights. Yes. Um, and on the other side of this, you obviously have more examples uh, of the religious right and the way that they, that they have become so um, animated by um, and driven by access to power, which yes. is being given to them in a really naked way right now. Right. And a really, uh, it's not even, at this point in this administration, there's not even an attempt to sort of uh, paint over it or make right. it seem like it, it just is what it is. I mean, you have Trump saying, uh, you know, this is what you want. You want power, you want influence, you have the numbers. I'm going to give you these things, mm -hmm. uh, point blank. And I think that it's not the, it's not the mingling, and, and George, we talked about this before. The gospel is political. The right. Bible is political. Right. What it is not is partisan. Right. And in the United States, the gospel and the Bible have become, in various ways, partisan. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that, that you have now, the data at least bears this out, it's one of the things that's driving the decline in uh, religious attendance, in mm. religious interest in the United States mm. is that there is a uh, increasingly an entire generation of people, and even I think it transcends uh, the generational shift, who are saying, you know what, if being a Christian just means being a handmaiden for a political party, I'm out. Right, right. And yet, I, I have to say, part of the struggle, I think, for many people who are uh, more religious progressives and uh, political progressives is that uh, they do have this sense that uh, in in both the religious and political worlds uh, that we should be using what power we have on behalf of the powerless. And that feels a whole lot more like the way we should read the Bible uh, because the Bible itself, you know, the. God breaks into a slave people and, and, and hears their cries and creates a people that come out of these, this sense of 
oppression and economic and political oppression makes a people, and throughout the, all of the scriptures, this is sort of the way that things are supposed to tend, is we're supposed to care for the widow and often, orphan and welcome the stranger and make sure that there is no poor among you and, and, and those sorts of things. And yet, um, when, when we make this case, it sounds like we're simply making a case for the Democratic Party and not for the Republican Party. Look, there you go, you're being political. Uh, how do you wrestle with the fact that there are some common themes to that that seem to fit right now more one party than the other? It doesn't have to be that way, but it is the way it's falling out mm -hmm. right now. Well, I think you have to take a long view. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you've been at your current church now almost three decades. Yeah. I should be able to look back over your career, over your sermons, mm -hmm. and I should be able to find um, points right. where what you said would align more with yeah. people on the right yeah. and other times where it's more with people on the left. Right. What, you, what you do often have is, 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 is uh, religious leaders who use coded language to basically push political platforms and they never diverge. There's no right. divergence. Right. And so you have a theology that, that sort of oddly does align. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in addition, what you find is, is you can look at the point of emphasis. Mm -hmm. So when you go into churches today, if you go into a conservative church, um, you hear them talking uh, a lot about, say, gay marriage. Right. And I believe there are, what, seven verses, let's say, that talk mm -hmm. about same-sex relationships. And over 2,000 verses that talk about justice. Poor, and justice, yeah. And, and if you preach, yeah. a, as, as an evangelical would say, you preach the whole counsel of God, should you not preach in some regard, like maybe something close to proportionality, right. but but you start to realize that the places where that that where the corresponding political party places their emphasis just so happens to be mm -hmm. the place where you put all of your emphasis. Right. So uh, you know if you to to borrow from somebody smarter than me, if you want to know whether the root is partisan, look and see if the fruit is partisan. Uh -huh. You, It doesn't take a rocket scientist yeah. typically to say, okay, I see what's going on here. Right, right. Yeah, was it was it Anne Lamott that said too that, uh, you know, uh, somehow if your God uh, hates all the same people as you do, right. you probably are worshiping an idol. Right. And and I think that's 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 also true, and, and, and therefore we have to really stop and ask uh, whether uh, it, it, consistency may really be the hobgoblin in this case of, of bad religion. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, it, in a sense, God is full of surprises and is, is always calling us to pay attention to things that we have neglected. So I think, uh, I think you make a point uh, about that. Uh, but here we are um, uh, in, in a time when people are making the claim, Jonathan, that this is an apocalyptic moment, right? And uh, you and I both know that apocalyptic is a kind of genre of biblical and theological thought that usually has to do with the end times, but it also has to do with everyday uh, unveiling of what's really going on uh, around us at, at, at any given time. Uh, what, what do you say to Christians when they feel fearful about the chaos they're experiencing, that they feel disoriented, they don't, they don't have a sense that uh, things are as stable as they were when they grew up. Maybe they, you know, it, it seemed like everything was figured out and now everybody is unsure of things. Where, where do you go with them in that conversation? Well, I do, I, I absolutely believe that this is an apocalyptic moment in the, in the strict sense of the word, which is it's a moment of unveiling. It's yeah. a moment where, where all of these facades 
right. uh, have are being torn down. Mm -hmm. You know, a great example of this uh, is during the Obama administration. Early on, we were so fond of saying, "Well, look, look now, America has become post-racial." <laughs> Who who would ever say that now? Right, I mean, right. you see, you see the resurgence of white supremacy, for example. Sure. We we've had uh, an apocalypse when right. it comes to race. We've yes. had an unveiling of just how racist we actually are. Right. So nobody can pretend that we're post-racial the way that they did eight years ago. So that's a gift to us. Mm -hmm. it, it's a painful gift, but we can but see what's really true. Right, because until right. you can see reality, you can't deal with reality. Right. So right. now a person like you, for example, mm. you're a pastor. You can preach to what's true, not to what you thought was true, but was uh. actually untrue. So mm. what <coughs> what I've, I've often said is that America is in a moment of disillusionment. Uh. Um, you know, Barbara Brown Taylor has written about this to say that how, the, he talks about the gift of disillusionment, that mm. disillusionment uh, by definition is the loss of illusion. Yeah. That the things that we, that were the lies that we called truth, right. we now know are lies. Right. What a gift that is. Right. So in some ways, despite all the pain, mm -hmm. and, and you know, if I could snap my fingers and, and change presidents, I would do it. And yet, that's and the flip yet, side of that. That is an interesting Is that we're in a moment of disillusionment, that is a real right. gift, because right. we're able to now see reality for what it is. And it's painful to think even about those who have hitched their wagon to this president uh, religiously and spiritually, and have made every kind of justification for uh, why they do it, and they go find Cyrus the Persian king and oh, right. you know all these sorts of ways in which <laughs> yeah, right. you know he's uh, he's going to be used by God and all of that and, and look I you know maybe that is also the way God works and good things can come but I think this is one of the real beneficial things uh, for us right now is uh, we we can see the contrast uh, we can see uh, that we, we can't deny uh, the the spirit of exclusion the, you know, the desire to say that my white skin makes me better than someone uh, with black skin or brown skin or, or, or other skin. And, and uh, you know, there's this preference for, uh, for my values uh, in marriage over the marriage equality that uh, someone else should have that right. Uh, these things are all really being unveiled now. Mm -hmm. yeah. It, and 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 you know, going back to what we said earlier, we we need this, yeah. uh, particularly in faith communities. We need a moment where we can where we can see that contrast because I think there were back uh, 10, 15 years ago, pre-Trump, pre-Trump's America, we were able to to pretend, particularly yes. in some religious communities, that what we cared about, for example, was character. Yes, right, you know, right. That was the right. rallying cry of, right. the, of the, the Bill Clinton era, was character counts. Yes. But the same people who said character counts uh, now laud a uh, thrice married, sexist, xenophobic, right. racist president who paid off a porn star and uh, mm -hmm. you know once owned and operated a strip club. Right. All of the things that these communities said they didn't. They, they needed right. to stand against. Right. So what you're able to see is, is, oh yes, it actually isn't about character. It's about power. It's right. about privilege. Yeah. It's about access. Right. And so to be able now to see the truth, rather to live on than than to live under a lie, is really a gift. And so in that sense, somebody should send 
Trump a thank you card. Thank you right. for telling us what really is going on in some of these religious communities. We suspected it was true, and now we know it's true. I do think that there's a danger in uh, reacting to this in a way, too, where we think if we just go back and elect the next Obama again, or uh, the, 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 the kind of uh, progressive that we think will set us back on track, then everything will, will iron out because we, we, we now woke up to it and we're back to the kind of leadership that we need. And I think that would be a tremendous mistake because we would have failed to recognize that, you know, in, in the sort of traditional liberalism and progressivism, there is a tendency to think that there is a kind of growth toward the kingdom of God that is a straight line in every day and in every way, better and better if we just make these, these political decisions and policy decisions. But there is a kind of angularity to the way God keeps breaking into the world, you know? And, and, and it, it's, it's never that straight line, is it? Mm -hmm. it's, I think you're right. I think it's not a straight line. I also think you're touching on something important when you say, well, we think if we just elected this person instead of that person. Uh, you know, Marion Williamson talks about how we treat politics. We, we have a kind of a mechanical approach. Mm -hmm. So we think if I just replace this gear or that gear, this politician or that right. politician, if I pass this law or that law, then everything will be set aright. But actually, uh, there's a deep sickness mm -hmm. in our society. We're sick with fear, we're sick with hatred, right. and, and the, the kinds of politicians that we have and the kinds of, of laws that we have are actually downstream uh, of all of these infections yeah. that we failed to deal with. Right. And so you have this kind of mechanical or allopathic approach mm -hmm. to uh, public policy that is, it has and is failing miserably. Right. And I think we have to begin speaking about the problem behind the problems. Which sets us all the way back to the beginning to say that there is a spiritual inheritance we have. That's right. That we can <laughs> renew. That's and right. maybe it takes some work to learn to speak God from scratch again, but that really is the place of hope that we have. Uh, thank you for sharing in that hope uh, with us in, on Good God, and thank you for uh, your, your good work and friendship along the way. My pleasure. Thanks, Jonathan. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Here's grateful appreciation to Evolve Technology for location production facilities. Evolve Technology for home audio, video, and lighting design. Enjoy more, think less with Evolve. See their great work at EvolveDallas.com. Thanks to Wendy Crispin Caterer for guest parking accommodations. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2018 by Faith Commons. Compassionate DFW is striving to make Dallas-Fort Worth more intentionally compassionate, where everyone is committed to live by the principles of compassion and the golden rule. It works through diverse initiatives, arts, business, education, environmental, healthcare, religious, spiritual, interfaith, and more. Visit CompassionateDFW.org to get involved.